0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, we have um, in our church the privilege for many years to have a pastor's training program called New Geneva Academy. I was trained for ministry in this program and now have the privilege of being a part of the training of other men. We have three students in residence here uh, at this time. We'd love to have more, but we've got three. And this morning, our sermon text is going to be read to us by one of the students, Daniel Froman. So, Daniel, would you come and give your attention to the reading of God's Word?
1: Good morning. I'll be reading from Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord
0: God. Thank you, Daniel. Well, we've been working through the book of Acts, come to this passage, which is a very different in character and tone than anything that we've yet encountered. God's spirit is active miraculously here, no less than he has been previously in the book, but here the miracles are not miracles of benevolence and mercy, they're miracles of judgment. They're not healings, they're killings, just to put a fine point on it. Normally, the miracles and signs that attend the gospel um, proclamation and the ministry of the Spirit in the book of Acts are miracles that are miracles of healing and blessing. And that goes well with the message of the gospel, which is a message of hope and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And those miracles are accomplished there to confirm the authority of this message and of the messengers. Negative miracles, you could call this a negative miracle, like this, are less common but not unprecedented. At times, key times in salvation history, God has um, shown up in judgment. Among his people has brought judgment to bear on some for the good and protection and well-being of all. And that's what we have here. He does this so that everyone will be warned. Everyone will remember. He is not to be trifled with. He is a holy God. And he requires truth in the inmost being. And that's what the message really of this text for the people that experienced it and for us today who have it to consider is. Let's step back from it and get a sense of the context in which these miracles occur. Up to this point in the book of Acts, we've had a rather upbeat account of things. We've had a lot of good things happening. Um, The Spirit of God has been poured out on the disciples. They've been preaching um, these amazing sermons, convicting sermons, powerful sermons. The response has been overwhelming. There's been uh, incredible conversions, mass conversions of thousands of Jewish people to the way of Jesus uh, in response to this preaching. There's been at least one astonishing miracle of uh, On the way to the temple that Peter and John uh, accomplish, where a man is healed who 's been lame, and this garners a lot of attention around the city, some of it 's negative, but the, the apostles respond to that with fortitude and faith. We see God pour out and, and grant boldness, great incredible boldness to the apostles in response to their the united prayers of the church for that gift, and we 've seen at least two now really beautiful summaries of the tone, the tenor of this new community, spirit-filled community that's being formed. It's just beautiful, these descriptions of what what the church is like. We see that they are united in spirit, that they have incredible closeness of fellowship and of devotion, that they have um, a spirit of hospitality and sharing, that they have incredible generosity among them, where they're taking care of one another freely and and from a sense of love. Well, the second of these summaries of the character of the church immediately precedes our text that we had read to us this morning at the end of chapter 4. And I want to begin by reading that. Turn to Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 32, if you have your Bible. It says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each As any had need, isn't that incredible? What a beautiful summary of of a beautiful community. Wouldn't you want to live there? Calvin is amazed as he comments on this passage. He says, "The company which was gathered together in the name of Christ at that time was rather a company of angels than of men." It's really remarkable. None of them are thinking. As is this the habit? The 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 steady state of each of us is to think, okay, well I've got this stuff. How can I manipulate this stuff that I have to my greatest advantage? How can I position things and I work things so that I can grow my wealth and I can get more of what I want for myself? That's the steady state of man. That's our that's our base. That's where that's how we live and approach life. That's our normal, fleshly orientation to things. And here we see something completely different. Totally different, radical transformation by the Holy Spirit of God. Where now they're thinking, "Okay, I've got this stuff entrusted to me by God. How can I use it to greatest advantage to bless the church and bless my brothers and take care of people and support the work of the church and the ministry? I want to do. I want to build the kingdom of God. How can I do that to greatest advantage?" It's a beautiful thing, truly wonderful. If we just take it. Well, we've, we've spent some time over the weeks considering the question of what is prescriptive and normative from the book of Acts. There's a lot of things in the book of Acts. Not all of it is normative for us today, and that's just one of the dilemmas or the, the challenges of interpreting the book. What's prescriptive? What, do, what should we feel the heat from from this book? And what should we expect to have um, experience as common here among us today? Well, I think this... The circumstances may vary between Jerusalem at that time and today, but this spirit of generosity and of Christian charity and concern for one another and this loose hold that they have on their stuff where they're just thinking, how can I I bless people with what God has given me? That, I think, is normative. That, I think, we should feel the heat from, from God's word, and we should consider ourselves in light of it, as a mirror. You should look into that mirror and consider, am I like that? How am I not like that? What's your relationship like with your stuff? What is it to you? Is it, is your stuff, kids, you have stuff. Moms and dads have stuff. We have things, possessions. What's your relationship like with your stuff? Is it, well, this is what I deserve. Is this the just reward of my own ingenuity and my hard work? And, you know, I should reap the benefits of, um, I'm the kind of person that deserves these kinds of things. Is this your relationship to stuff? This exists for me, and I deserve it. Or is it what we see here, something very different, which is this stuff that I have has been entrusted to me by God so that I can bless others. That's why I have this stuff. God has given me this stuff so that I can figure out the the most ways possible to use it to, to glorify him and to bless others. Wouldn't it be beautiful if someday, looking back on the life of our church, a historian said, it's amazing. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Not because scripture doesn't Respect and establish and uphold personal property rights. This is not like Christian communism It's actually not biblical and part we know that in part because of the questions that Peter asks Ananias in this very passage when he's Challenging him and he says things like was it not your own as long as it was unsold was it not under your control? Was it not yours free to do with what you wanted? There are people in in history who have seen this kind of way of this Christian, this charitable spirit and tried to institute it in the church by coercion, by force, where you're required by way of membership in this community to to surrender control of your possessions at the door to the authorities who then distribute it out equally or as, as need would have it. That is not biblical. You cannot force this from the outside or you cannot institutionalize this thing. If we want to have a life, a a spirit of charity and generosity pervade in the church, there is nothing for it but that we have to turn to the Holy Spirit of God in prayer and say, we want to see you work among us in this way. We want to see you pry from the clutches of our grasp, our tight hold on our possessions. We want to see you work in our hearts and among us in such that we have this outlook, this transformation of our thinking about what our stuff is for and where it comes from and who it belongs to. We wanna use it to bless others. If There's nothing for it but that we have to see God work. We have to see God work and wouldn't it be wonderful if looking back on our life together, people were amazed at the beautiful charity and mutual compassion and empathy and generosity that it existed among us. Well, we see a specific instance of this incredible generosity in in the next two verses of chapter four. Verse 36, it says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, so a man from, a, a Levite who had been living in Cyprus, who was born there, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it And brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, this is our introduction to this man Barnabas, who becomes very important as the book goes on. He's very significant in the life and ministry of the apostle Paul. This is Barnabas who God directed, the God Spirit directed, to meet Paul after his conversion. He's blind and needs someone to comfort and help him and guide him. And Barnabas is sent to him. This is our introduction introduction to this man. We're told how Barnabas sells a valuable, I assume it's a very valuable piece of land, and he brings the whole amount to the apostles and says, here, this is for the good of the community. I want to just be a blessing and a help to you. He's clearly not looking to make a name for himself, but he makes a name for himself in doing it. He endears himself to the whole community as a, as a leader in generosity, as a leader in faithfulness, and a leader in this new Christian spirit that is pervading I thought of Dr. Spadey, Adam Spadey. And he was a generous man. He was a Barnabas kind of man. Dr. Spadey was a doctor, so he had a lot of money, okay? Not a lot by comparison to some, but a lot had money. And I didn't know how much he gave and invested in our life and in our ministry in terms of the dollars, I didn't know that but by his devotion to the Lord, by his generosity of his time, oh my goodness, that man gave us his time, constant time. You knew he was a generous man. Dr. Spadey was a Barnabas. He was a Barnabas, a son of encouragement, constantly encouraging this church and its leaders and blessing the whole community. Barnabas endears himself, just as Adam did, to the church. Well, this is the setup for what follows in Acts chapter 5. The next word we see in the text, the first, verse of, the first word of chapter 5 is, but. But. Uh-oh. This is an uh-oh, but. Something is changing here. Something is coming in by way of contrast to what has come before. This is an example of Barnabas. All is not well in the church. A snake has come into the garden. There are people among this group of believers, spirit-filled believers, living this life of a beautiful community. And, but some of them are imposters. Some of them there, are there for less than holy reasons. And God's spirit points them out, makes an example of them, shines a light on them, in a dramatic and severe way for the good and protection uh, uh, and the purity of the church. Calvin says it's enough to make your hair stand on end, this account of how he deals with Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' So those are the basic facts set up for this account. And now we want to consider, clearly this was sin, because God judges it as as a very serious sin. We want to consider what was the nature of their sin. We want to to consider who they sinned against and how God judged them for it. Let's look at what was the nature of their sin. We need to be clear, first of all, about what it's not, what was not their sin. Would God have struck them down if they had decided to, to not sell the land and to keep it for themselves? Or if they had sold the land to keep the money for themselves to put it to some other use? Would God have struck them down for that? Absolutely not. Peter makes this clear, he confirms it in his line of questioning to Ananias. When he, in verse four he says, Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? God's word acknowledges personal property rights. It upholds them. You are free to do with your stuff what you want, what you think is best. And as a Christian, you're accountable to God for glorifying him with it. But that there's a lot of ways to glorify God with your wealth. You're free to do that. It is yours. It's from the Lord for you. It's not mine. It's yours. I'm not to covet what you have. You're not to covet what I have. One of the reasons is because it belongs to you and it belongs to me. God has not given it to each of us the same. God's word upholds personal property and respects those boundaries. This was theirs. They were under no compulsion, or requirement, no rule. Certainly you could say there may have been social pressure from all this generosity going around to Demonstrate that you yourself are are generous like the rest, but they were under no law, no rule. God would certainly not have judged them harshly for failing to give, for for keeping the land for themselves or keeping the money from the sale of the land and put it to some other use. Would God have struck them down if after selling the land they had kept some of the money for themselves and given the rest to the church? So kept some for themselves, given the rest of the church, as long as they were upfront and clear about what they were doing and what their intentions were. No Again, Peter says this and at the end of verse four, he says, After it was sold, Ananias, was it not still under your control? When it was cash money, wasn't that money still yours and under your control? So what did they do that was wrong? Kids, I hope you're thinking, what was wrong with what they actually did? Well, here's what it was. By arrangement between them, they presented some of the proceeds of the sale of this land to the church as if it was all the proceeds from the sale of the land. That's what they did. They presented some of the proceeds of the sale of the land to the church as if it was all the proceeds. That is to say they lied. They lied. They just lied about it. This is not a lie told in a moment of weakness under pressure. Oh, guys, you lie under pressure. We lie under pressure. When we're in a corner, when we're scared, when we want to get out from under and we're, we're nervous and afraid, we tell half-truths, we lie to, to avoid things. We do that. This is not that. Those are bad. But that, if that's what had happened here, it would have been much more understandable and more leniently dealt with this is a premeditated conspiratorial lie between two parties in agreement together to lie to the church which is to lie to the Holy Spirit husband and wife we're often weak husbands and wives independent of each other come home in a bad mood, come home depressed from work, facing something that's just overwhelming to you and you're thinking atheistic, depressing thoughts about life. And what is your wife there for? To help you, to point you to the Lord, to remind you of truth. Wife, what is your husband for in your life? If not to promote godliness in in you. That's what marriage is. This is one of the great blessings of marriage is that when one of us is weak and tempted and being led astray, the other one is there to say, no, 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 come on. Come on, come on, come on. We're not gonna do that. (laughs) We're not gonna think that way. We're not, no, no, no. you can't be saying that because remember what God has said. Remember, this is what marriage is for. And what an abuse of this blessing of God where both of them agree together. They're in cahoots together against the Lord. In the name of, carrying the name of Christian and carrying the badge of a Christian marriage, they conspire together against the Lord and against his people with this, by perpetrating this lie. Now what would motivate them to deceive the church in this way? What were they seeking? Well, this is not hard to figure out And it is also not hard to, to, what would I say? It is also not hard to relate to, that's what I would say. (laughs) It's not hard to figure out what what a motive would be for doing this and it's not hard to relate to that motive actually. What's the motive? All these people are being generous. Barnabas has just done this great thing and endeared himself to the church. I want to be endeared to the church. I'm covetous, but, I also, uh, but I'm also covetous. <laughs> I want the applause of men just as much as I want my money. So here's an idea. Let's try to get both. Let's try to get some money out of the deal and also some applause out of the deal. They were seeking to gain a reputation for themselves. They wanted to look good in the eyes of others. Here's what one commentator said. He said, seeing others give liberally for the support of the church, Ananias desired also to be looked upon as charitable and liberal. He was in reality covetous, and yet he wished to be regarded as charitable, and hence it was that he played the hypocrite. God hates hypocrisy. This is one of the things he detests most, hypocrisy. He wants truth in the inmost being. He wants our hearts to be right before him. He, in the Old Testament, he goes so far as to just say, I hate the things that you're doing in worship, things I know I've commanded you to do, but I didn't, I don't, who asked for this? I don't even want this, your festivals and your celebrations, because they're so filled with hypocrisy You're given to all this wickedness and yet here you come to worship and worship me in this way. Who needs it? It's a stench to me. God desires truth in the inmost being and here are people pretending to be something they're not. People pretending to be something they're not. Here they are in a society of people who are filled with the spirit of God yet what are Ananias and Sapphira filled with? You see what Peter says to him in verse three? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? This is very sobering. This passage of scripture is absolutely no use to us if we don't think about ourselves carefully and evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves hard questions. Do you think Ananias and Sapphira knew that they were filled with the Holy, with Satan's influence, demonic influence? Do you think they're thinking, I'm, I know I'm evil. How can I? No, this is not the mentality. Satan clothes himself in light. He is a deceiver. He is the father of lies. And, hi, and here... Here are people who are under his influence and he seeks to infiltrate and destroy the church, cause her trouble, to corrupt her, to take this beautiful thing that the Spirit of God is creating that is absolutely gorgeous and to ruin it all with hypocrisy, with deception, with fighting and hatred, with selfishness. He's trying to corrupt the church and infiltrate the church. And here are his willing stooges for all intents and purposes, as far as they know and everybody else knows, Christians. What are you here for? What am I here for? This is absolutely no use to us if we don't ask ourselves hard questions because you can deceive I read this to my kids the other night, and I thought, what can I say to my kids about this passage? I said, kids, you can fool your mom and dad. You can fool your teachers at school. You can fool your friends. Husbands and wives can fool one another. You can fool your pastors, your elders. You cannot fool God. You will not fool you are not fooling God. Whatever you are, in the most secret parts of your heart and mind, God knows. And you are accountable to Him, and you will answer for it. Every last one of us. God wants Innocence and truth and purity and holiness in the secret parts of our heart and mind. That's what he requires. That's what pleases him. He, does, he loves to look on that more than anything. And that's what he requires. Why are you here? What are you after? What is your motivation? Among us. What is my motivation? One of the scariest things is actually not that, you can just get, not that you can just fool everybody else, your pastors, elders, friends, husband, wife, spouse. You can fool yourself. In fact, Jesus warns about this, that on the day of judgment, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things in your name? Did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And God will say, get away from me. I don't even know you. They fooled themselves. You will not fool God. He knows perfectly well who and what we are. He knows who belongs to him. He knows what you're about. Jealousy, covetousness, ambition, greed. These are not fruits of God's spirit. They're fruits of the devil. They're fruits of the flesh. But motives like these, motives like these, jealousy, covetousness, greed, they don't present themselves as jealousy, covetousness, and greed, unless they absolutely have to, unless they're forced out into the open. But They only succeed because they exist under a covering of godliness. And so ask yourself, what are you about? Self, what am I about? If God were to show up in judgment now, right now, who would survive? on what basis would any of us survive? These are actually the questions we should be asking based on the judgments of scripture. The judgments of scripture, the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, the warnings of the book of Hebrews, these are our friends. God not only gives promises in his word, he also gives warnings. And both of them work together to persevere us, to preserve us, to sustain us in faith. Warnings call, they wake us up. They say, wake up, Jody. Wake up. They wake us up to reality. They remind us of God's holiness and of his power. And we remember who we are and when, we, and when we stand in the light of God's judgments, because that's what God's judgments are. they like a spotlight <laughs> on God's requirements of holiness, of his power and his justice, of, of his um, willingness to vindicate himself and his honor at the cost of your eternal punishment or, or your, your eternal whatever, enjoyment. <laughs> These things wake us up to reality. They show us ourselves and then what do we, what do, we do? We go where there, there's only one place to go from there. That's what their purpose is. That's what the law of God's purpose is. That's what the judgments of God are for. They are to point us to the only hope. Point us away from all false hopes, all false assurances to the only hope there is which is the Lord Jesus Christ who died for hypocrites. He died for hypocrites. They lied. Maybe they lied explicitly Maybe they said, we've just sold some land, my wife and I, for such and such an amount, and we are pleased at this time to be able to donate that amount to the church. Maybe they just said that. Maybe they did it implicitly. Maybe they just put it at the apostles' feet and let people draw their own wrong conclusions (laughs) about the the meaning or the significance of the gift. Either way, they lied. They lied. They lied. They they lied in in a premeditated, intentional, and conspiratorial way to the church, leading people to think more highly of them than they deserved. And we see by God's response how seriously he takes that kind of lie. I say they lied to the church because that's certainly who they thought they were lying to. It's like they're not thinking about God at all. (laughs) They're just thinking, if they're thinking about God, God's just like, Peter, just like anybody else. You know, he's like, just like them. In fact, this is what Asaph in, in Psalm 50 says about the wicked. He said, You go about your, your wickedness and you think I don't know, you think I'm just like you. I'm an idiot just like you. Those are his words. Not the idiot part, but the just like you. When we sin, When we lie, we're acting as if God's just like us. Is God just like us? No. Listen to this from Hebrews. The audience of every sin is finally the Lord. And here's what he says. There is no creature hidden from his sight. This is Hebrews 4.13. He says... The author says, there is no creature hidden from the Lord's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Ananias and Sapphira made a grave mistake in forgetting the all-seeing eye of God and treating him as if he was foolable and as unsuspecting as any man. you will stand before God. Teenager, child, mom, dad, husband, wife, man, woman, you will stand before God. And he doesn't miss anything. Consider how God judged them for their sin. Verse 5 says, As Ananias heard these words of Peter, he fell down and breathed his last. Boom. Dead on the spot. And he's carried out by the young men and buried outside a distance away. Three hours later, his wife comes in and knowing nothing of what has happened with her husband is given a chance, mercifully, by Peter. This is important investigatory work. She's given a chance to exonerate herself from any involvement in this lie. But by by a a a carefully crafted question, the way she answers it, she proves that she's part of this conspiracy and is is a sharer in in the lie. And what happens to her? Verse 10, and immediately she fell at Peter's feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. There's a number of commentators, both ancient ones and modern ones who don't very much approve of the way God deals with Ananias and Sapphira. Now they don't quite come out and say it's their problems with God. They actually say their problems with Peter. Peter. This is an example of Peter being his rash self. He's, you know, he's new to the pastorate. He's not, he should be giving these people more of a chance. He should work with them pastorally and show them their error. No, I'm serious. This is what they say. It's a plausible argument, if I may say. It's worth considering. <laughs> we, have to under, we have to ask, why does God deal with them this way? This is severe. Enter in, people. This is severe. Why does God deal with him this way? Is Peter right? It's impossible finally to separate Peter from this judgment. It's not like he had a magic wand and said, to, to death with you. But he is the mouthpiece of God in discerning the error by the Holy Spirit. It would have gone undetected if God had not given Peter this word of knowledge, this discernment from above to see what was going on. And, and then through him, through his mouth, God declares and makes clear the sin. And then they die. And, and in the case of Sapphira, Peter actually says, it's going to happen to you, and it happens to her. But it is clearly the spirit of God. Peter is just the mouthpiece in the room. God's spirit punishes this pair pair severely. Why would he do this when so many other people seem to go free, like you and me, for instance? Is this an example of God being capricious, arbitrary? Well, we just don't think about God as we should. This is the problem. We think about him, again, as if he's just any man. Here's the fact. First of all, all the judgments of God are true and righteous altogether. Whatever he does is good and upright and just. All his deeds are faithful. We start there. And then we remember that he is holy. And when we get when we remember and we get a hold of this what it means that he is holy and exalted and we see our sinfulness and we consider how prevalent hypocrisy and deception are in in the lives of men in our lives it is not amazing that Ananias and Sapphira were, were judged they got what they deserved what's amazing is you and I don't that's what's amazing And many people don't, at least in this life. This is a constant sorrowful appeal to God on the part of of the psalmist who says, how long, O Lord, will you allow the wicked to prosper in this way? God, as they used to say, often does seem to wink at unrighteousness. He's tolerant, he's patient, he allows it to go on. Why does he do that? to allow time for people to repent. If you want to accuse God of being too harsh with Ananias and Sapphira, you got God all, and yourself all wrong. What you should realize is God's not being harsh with you. Praise his name. Give thanks to him. He's not being harsh with your neighbor. Go to them and love them and call them to the Lord. But finally, why does God choose Ananias and Sapphira and make an example of them? Well, this is something that often happens at key moments in biblical history and in salvation history, particularly at startup seasons, new days, when something new has happened. You know the example of Nadab and Abihu in the tabernacle? So there's this new tabernacle, a whole new system of worship, a newly minted priesthood Aaron and his sons and almost immediately Aaron's sons, Nate, Adam, and Abihu offer to the Lord a strange recipe of incense on the fire. He had given a very specific recipe and they offer something else on the altar. Contrary to his express, explicit instructions and the fire from heaven falls and they are consumed. Why? Uzzah. You know Uzzah? Late, many generations later, they're finally bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, the city of David, Zion, where it's, it's going to dwell for generations to come and be in, in the temple where it belongs. This is a great day of festivity and joy. And they're bringing it up on this cart, and it's, the cart starts to wobble, and Uzzah puts his hand out to touch the ark, which is not to be touched and he's struck dead. Why? There's another example, but I have to remind myself of what it is. Achan. They're coming into the promised land. They're inheriting the blessing of the promised land. They're taking it by force. They're conquering. And Achan, almost immediately, breaks God's word and takes some of the stuff that's under the ban for himself and hides it under his tent and he's commanded to be stoned with his whole family why because god loves his people because god knows that if they forget his holiness they will be lost they will wander away from him they will be corrupted they will be destroyed by their sin And God reminds them by making examples of some who are receiving the just penalty of their error. He's mercifully making an example of them for your sake. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, hearkening back to things in the Old Testament and particularly the judgments of the Old Testament, these things were done for your sakes. These things happened for your sakes so that you would be taught and instructed about the nature of the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira happened for the sake of the purity of the church so that you and I would be, we would be reminded. I've not had a great week, by the way. This is not fun text of scripture to ruminate in for a week. But it's been a good week for my soul. And this is a good word from the Lord for you. We're reminded that he is holy and he is not to be trifled with and sin is, he takes seriously and it is worthy of death. What was the effect that this judgment had on the church? Well, we see in verse 11, great fear, came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. So even outside the church, there's people who have heard and take it to heart and are afraid. But inside the church, there is great fear that comes over them. Fear is a very useful thing when it is fear of the Lord. One of the worst condemnations in Scripture of a a people is that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Fear of God is really just a reminder of His holiness, and then when we remember His holiness to any degree, when that's a part of our thinking, then we are held in check by that holiness, by that knowledge of God. The people who have no fear of God before their eyes are people who just give themselves to wickedness without any restraint, and that is an awful condition. So God wakes us up to his holiness so that we will be held in check. It's kind of God to call us back to his fear. It's kind of him to give us accounts like this and to call us to our senses. Calvin says, believers never fear God so perfectly. Believers, you and me. Believers never fear God so perfectly that they do not benefit still further by being warned of his judgments. We benefit from reminders of his power. Well, this hair-raising account is a call to self-examination for you and for me. This is of no use if you come away thinking, my goodness, what horrible people there were undercover, under cloak of godliness in this church back in those days. I'm sure glad God rooted out those one or two bad apples Phew, think of what we could have become. We have to be thinking of ourselves. Why are you here? What are you after? What were Ananias and Sapphira after? The applause of men. They were, after the, they were there to satisfy their lusts. They were seeking to build themselves up in the esteem of others. Why are you here? God gives us this account to be a mirror for us to look in, to see our own hypocrisy. Calvin says, the natural disposition of human beings is riddled with hypocrisy and lying, which have their roots in all of us. We also know that those roots will remain until God snatches them out by his Holy Spirit. Are you a hypocrite and a liar? I sure hope the answer is yes. Why would I hope that? Do I want you to be judged like Ananias and Sapphira? Quite the opposite. I believe that those who refuse to see, can't see, won't see their own hypocrisy, lying, corruption, deceitfulness of their own hearts, the influence of Satan in their thinking and their life, who won't heed warnings like this and say, oh, that's me. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I don't want to be like that. Save me. People that don't go there who won't acknowledge their sinfulness, their hypocrisy, I'm afraid, are under the condemnation of Ananias and Sapphira. They're the real hypocrites. The people who won't say they are. I, from time to time, have given my kids a little speech. I say that the difference between the people in here and the people out there people in our home versus the people in our neighborhood sorry (laughs) corrals the proverbial neighborhood the difference between us in here and the people out there is not that we're the goodies and out there they're the baddies that is not the difference the difference is only i mean everybody out there and in here we're all the baddies some of us in here are worse than people out there what's the difference the difference is in here We say, I'm bad. I don't have any hope. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a liar. God, forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the difference. That's what a Christian is. That's what a saved and justified and forgiven Christian is. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen by nature because by nature we have no hope that by looking at ourselves, by looking at the holiness of God, there could be any salvation or answer for our dilemma. So we, people who, who have no hope, who won't, haven't heard the gospel, who don't receive the gospel, they will not look at their sin because that's condemnation, and they can't bear it. But we have one who has borne it, Jesus Christ, he has borne the condemnation due for our hypocrisy and our lying and our sin and so we can look at it we can confess it we can say yeah that's me that's me oh god forgive me be have mercy i depend entirely on your mercy i have nothing in myself now when god calls us back to that we should be grateful to him The closest thing, this is weird, I'm just going to give you a little personal anecdote. The closest thing that I have in my life to a conversion story, strange. Maybe some of you might have heard it, but it's a strange story. I prayed a prayer when I was seven. I felt better for 48 hours. And then for the, re- for the next 20 years, 18 years, I did not have any peace with God. I just felt condemned. I felt there was no hope. I could not resolve the tension in my life. And then one day, in the deep in my cynicism and pride and and rebellion against God, somebody said to me, Jody, you're not an honest person. Who are you? What are you? Are you a Christian or are you a worldling? You're not honest. And I knew that was true. And I could not stop thinking about it. And so I got on an honesty kick. And the closest thing to being converted that I have to point to was this. This was the start of my spiritual life and peace with God. I sat my parents down and I said, you need to know that I'm not what you think I am. I know they didn't really But I was under the pressure, the fear of man so powerfully in my life that I had to just be honest with them. I said, I'm not even a Christian. That was the start of me being a Christian. Isn't that weird? (laughs) Maybe everyone's story is different. Everyone's hypocrisy, fear of man, works its way out uniquely interesting ways. That was the way God started his work in me. Coming to the end of myself and being finally being honest and just saying, this is who I am. And then I started to understand the grace of God because I was honest with myself and with people around me who love me. Some of us are liars. We're hypocrites. The worst kind. The judged kind. And we need to just be honest and fold our hand and say, I am guilty. I am despicable. I am filthy. If you knew me, you wouldn't like me. Look at me. There's a lot of hope for a person like that. That's the The gospel is for people like that. Jesus said, I came to save sinners, not the righteous. And so our access to God, our way to God through Jesus Christ is opened through this kind of self-examination work in our hearts, spirit-led, where we're able to look at ourselves, our sins, and for what they are, and say, oh, there's no hope for me apart from the grace of God. God, save me, a sinner. Brothers and sisters, let us examine and probe our ways. And let us return to the Lord. Amen? We come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Elders, if you'd come forward, please. That whole sermon really was an exhortation to the work that is required to participate in this meal and escape the condemnation of this meal. (laughs) Because those who take of this meal in an unworthy manner violate the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and they bring condemnation upon themselves. What does it mean to partake of it in a worthy manner? Well, there's a very interesting phrase in the passage that we read that we actually don't often read um, as part of the liturgy. These are the words of institution we know well where Paul says this is the body, and he repeats the words of Jesus, I deliver unto you that which I've also received, that thing. I'll read that in a minute. But just after that, Paul goes on to say, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now listen to this. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Isn't that interesting? We are to eat in an examining way. We normally normally put this negatively, and it's quite all right to put it negatively, where we should examine ourselves and not eat. (laughs) But actually the words are, we are to eat in an examining way that is what that is the fitness that god is looking for he is not looking for righteousness in you that is not what qualifies you for the lord's table what he's looking for is self-examination and humility and the fear of the lord cuz that he loves to this one i will look to him who trembles at my word. So if you're examining your heart before God and you're considering whether you're worthy and you're coming up short. You've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. Well, good. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. He's here for you. He has all that you need. He has the cleansing that you need. He has the sufficiency that you need. He has the merit that you need. He has the worthiness that God requires. He's got that taken care of, and he offers it to you as he offers his body and his blood. Paul writes, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this meal and all that it stands for, it stands for the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice for our sin. It stands for his willingness to go, undergo all the torments and punishments of your rejection for us out of his great love and obedience to you. Father, thank you for Jesus, through whom by faith we have access to you and we have the gift of your spirit, and we have hearts that cry out to you, Abba, Father. Thank you, Father, for all the gifts and privileges of union with our Savior, Jesus. Not only that he has atoned for and satisfied your wrath against sin and has quieted all of your anger towards us, but we have his righteousness supplied to us. And we have the assurance that as we are united to him by our faith, the gift of faith from you, we are able to stand in your presence unashamed, cleared of all sin, and seen as completely obedient and righteous, just as Jesus is accepted before you. What a tremendous gift, Father. Thank you so much for your son and his work. And for this meal, which you've given us to partake in, to testify and proclaim his death and our love for him. And so Lord, would you set apart these common elements to a holy and a sacred use to which you have appointed them and make them by your spirit through faith, the food, the spiritual food that we need, the cleansing of sin that we need. And I pray that you'd strengthen us, Father, and send us back out into the battle of life, renewed and strengthened and helped. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.